Welcome to the Story Church Podcast. The Story Church Podcast is the official podcast of the Story Church Project, which focuses on redesigning Adventism from tradition to mission. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here. I want to welcome you back to the Story Church Podcast this week. I'm going to be focusing on the future of Adventist evangelism. Now, that's a really, really, really big topic. And so I'm super stoked that I'm not actually going to be wrestling with this all by myself. I am joined by Lisa Clark Diller, professor of church history at Southern Adventist University. Lisa, how are you? I'm great. It's uh, fun to be talking to Australia. Oh, yeah. Well, this is this is true. Yeah, I'm, I'm all the way in wonderful Australia. You know, it's really cold here right now. It's kind of frustrating. I'm actually sitting on my computer desk with a uh, with a sweater, sweatpants and a bathrobe because I'm so cold. Wow. Uh, wow. That's hard is, to imagine. Perth. Well, it's you know, the thing is, it actually doesn't get very cold out here. I got to be honest. I grew up in New Jersey. I mean, come on, you know, mm-hmm. um, yep. but the thing is, the houses here don't have central heating mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. when it's winter like i find mm-hmm. the winters in new jersey a lot easier even though they're so much colder because you're always warm when you're inside you're walking around in flip-flops and shorts right. whereas right. Our, here our it's central like, condi- air conditioning yeah yeah whereas like here i mean some people have you know central heating but it's hard to find a house like that and um yeah, you just freeze twenty four seven. Like literally, I have to go to bed each <laughs> night with the with the you know those hot water bottles that you put boiling yeah, water in from yeah. the kettle. Yeah, that's how we sleep at Keep night to, to save the bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, it's a it's brutal, I, and August tends to be the worst. So anyway, um, Lisa, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself for those who are not familiar with you. Oh yes, well, I am a pastor's daughter and. A, uh, a member of a very big family, so I have, uh, we, we like to put the fun and dysfunctional in our family, nice. and we uh, love being a bit crazy um, together, and um, my husband and I have been married for 22 years, and Woo! we, yeah, yeah, it's uh, coming up here at the end of August. That's awesome, and, um, you guys, you guys, like, it's, it's sort of weird, because when I look at you guys, you look so young, and I'm like, yeah, we don't wow, have children, Marcus. years. Oh, ah, yeah. there you uh-huh. go. That makes sense. Yeah, yes. there's a there's a method to our madness. Um, so we get we miss out on a lot of the, uh, you know, challenges, but also we miss out on the on the love and the fun, and uh, so we both of those things cost emotional tolls yeah. sometimes, and yeah. uh, on your body, both the good and the bad and the ugly. <laughs> so yeah, we we've uh, lived for 17 years here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in our 110-year-old house, and um, in in the city of Chattanooga, which is about oh about 250,000 um, people in the in the Chattanooga, um, but not within the city limits or, or close by. So it's a nice size city, a little small small city, about two hours from Atlanta, two hours from Nashville, and um, we uh, have we planted a church here in the city about in 2008. Um, just as uh, the um, McCain-Obama campaign was heading heating up, yeah, we were that. planting a church, 
and uh, the and the city has gentrified all around us. Um, so we're adjusting as a church to that. And um, I've over the years built um, helped build up the uh, history and political studies department. Um, so now I'm I'm chair of that at Southern Adventist University, and we offer majors in our department in history and political science and international development. So it's wow. uh, a fun crew of students I get to spend my life with, and when I'm not um, hanging out with my nieces and nephews or my um, big family, and or at work with my students, I'm here in the little community of Glenwood in the heart of Chattanooga. Um, weeding my yard and uh, petting my cat and reading my books. <laughs> oh, that sounds awesome, man. That sounds awesome. Now, um, I uh, I spent some years at Southern Adventist University, and mm. uh, but I unfortunately missed you as a professor by one year. I, I believe my class with Dr. Oh. Pettibone was the last oh. before he retired. Wow. Um, and then you came along, yeah. and I was like, oh, I just missed Lisa. Wow, but Pettibone was yeah. cool too. So it's it's like sure bittersweet was. because I would have loved to have had your classes, but then Pettibone was also like yeah, he was know, legends. I took church history from him. Yeah, he was legends. And yeah. I really enjoy teaching church history. Um, it's it's super fun, and uh, the the students, some of the subjects I'm sure we'll talk about today are ones we talk about in class and. Uh, you know, fortunately, we're not the first people to, mm. to wonder how to deal with these questions um, of evangelism, and I find that encouraging. Um, I remember as a kid, I got interested in church history because my dad, um, well, he, he, I was reading everything in the house, and he got his church history books from the seminary down off the shelf. He told me if I read them, I could have them. He did that with uh, quite a few books. He's not a huge reader. I mean, he apparently had to read in... in uh, div school, but um, he didn't. He read, you know, the Bible and and uh, sometimes a commentary or two. But he got his concordance out and did his Bible studies that way, and that was his primary kind of method of reading and what he spent time reading. But he, but I liked reading everything, and so he was willing to pass on his books to me. And I remember one time. Um, esoteric conversation that my religion teacher was having with the principal. They were arguing in my little Christian school over the nature of Jesus. Like, did Jesus have a nature of Adam before the fall or after the fall? And that was super important to them, and they were really into it. And I thought it was a very interesting argument. None of my friends um, cared one whit what they were talking about. They were just kind of interested in the fight, um, yeah. the fact that there was a fight. <laughs> and, um, you know, I came home, and I was like, oh, my, you know, and so, you know, he made this argument, and he made this argument. And my dad said, well, you know what I found interesting in my church history classes at seminary? People have been discussing this for a really long time. Yeah. And we might not get it totally right today. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, pointing me to his history books, like, I was like, oh, yeah, that would be, that's interesting. People, the, this did, isn't just a discussion point someone came up with yesterday, you know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was I, I enjoy getting to teach history for those reasons. And then getting to teach students like yourself who are going to go out and, and try to be the church and lead the church today, you know, in light of everything we know from the past. Absolutely. And look, I can totally relate to that because I remember when I um, first took church history, 
with Dr. Pettibone, going all the way back, you know, to like the first century and sort of the things that were happening with the church during that time. And I remember like reading all these debates they were having and, you know, mm. different ideas that were being thrown around. And it was kind of liberating because in my head, I was like, I thought we made these debates up, you know, like I, uh-huh. I, I thought I uh-huh. thought this stuff had only been happening for the last 50 yeah. years. And, and like there's right. something wrong with us that we're trying to resolve. It's like, OK, this has been happening for 2000 years. All right, relax. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. It's, it's not it can, the stakes can't be that high. Like it, the whole fate of the church cannot rest on it mm. if we have not been able to resolve it before now. Yeah, you know, yeah. the kingdom of God, <laughs> the kingdom of God has been at work and moving mm. in spite of his people not totally sorting out some things yeah, yeah that's right about yeah. the nature of god and the incarnation <laughs> so absolutely yeah. man well hey i got one more question for you before we we dive it's um before we dive into our topic it's my uh, my dumb question of the interview i always have a dumb question in the interview before we dive into the topic um and this one is what is the nerdiest thing you've ever done yeah i i find this challenging because um I do a lot of really nerdy things, and sometimes I don't know that they're that nerdy until my <laughs> friends and family like totally make fun of me for doing them, and I, I don't realize it was that nerdy. Um, maybe one of the more slightly embarrassing, in certain contexts, nerdy things I do is I like all my, um, all my friends who write academic books, I make them sign the books, and even not <laughs> academic books. Like anybody who writes, if you write a book, Marcos, and I see, I will bring a copy of it and make you sign it. <laughs> and people find that to be like a little bit uh, nerdy. I, I also travel everywhere I go with a whole bunch of books. Like we're getting ready to go to France for a week, and I just went to McKee Library on the campus of Southern Adventist University and like checked out eight books on French history wow. to nice. bring with me in my suitcase. I regularly travel with 20 to 30 books in my suitcase um, to read on my trip. Um, So, and not because I need something to read. And so this is the best way to do it. And and like, I don't, I've never heard of Kindle, but because these are books I need to read and this is a time to read them, you know, and I already have them, you know, it's not like I, you know, unlike the books, like, you know, when I'm traveling to a place and I want to know their history like like I just did with France where I do go out and try to find them I'm not buying those books I'm going to borrow them from the library that's um, a good idea yeah 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 but anyway mm-hmm. yes very nerdy I can imagine uh the um because don't they charge you like because hey, that's a lot of so books, nothing like they do heavy. in Australia not nothing like that so in Australia I have to really work hard so sometimes like because the internal flights you know like your carry-ons yeah. are weighed like in the U.S. the way your carry-ons aren't weighed and I can put a ton of books in my backpack okay. and stick it under the seat in front of me and so um i can uh, and i will put some in my suitcase as well but we don't have the freight restrictions in australia but literally when i sometimes when i've traveled in australia i will leave books at friends houses and take certain ones with me and then and then drop those off and pick other ones back i'll bring books that i'm okay with just leaving entirely you know in a place and so i have strategies for dealing with the draconian weight laws in australia oh this is this is this is brilliant this is brilliant spoken like a Mm -hmm. uh, a true academic yeah you figured out the (laughs) loopholes man yeah oh well look i want to dive into um our conversation for today but i I do want to make one more point and um, we'll make it quick because um, just to be mindful of time. But you did spend some time. I don't know. Maybe I got this totally wrong. Maybe it was somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. But did, mm-hmm. did you spend some time 
doing something to do with C.S. Lewis at some point? Um, that's um, somebody in the English department you're thinking of. Oh, yes. that was somebody in the English uh, she, department. Okay. She, she went and spent several years, um, Debbie Higgins, um, went and spent several years at the C.S. Lewis house in London, um, outside of London, actually, um, and kind of what, and she taught C.S. Lewis classes. I yeah. went and visited her there while she was living there. Um, I lived in the UK for a year to do research for my dissertation um, because I do study British religious history, but in the 17th century, um, not Lewis. Okay. So that, okay. yes, that was it. Yeah, name. somehow I got mm -hmm. those confused, but it's worth noting that, I don't know about you, but I, I, I think you know, like, that would be the coolest thing to do ever. Like, you mm, know, go hang absolutely. out at C.S. Lewis's house and, like, absolutely. teach C.S. Lewis. Like, you know, it, yeah. come on. It's really cool. It's a really cool place, and she got to, like, organize um, seminars there. You know, wow. of course, there were lots of tourists that came by, but then yeah. she would organize events that were... Because Christian evangelicals in the United States are way more into C.S. Lewis than British people are. Like, people mm. know the Chronicles of Narnia, but... People aren't as, like, the fact that he was a Christian, doesn't register, um, and, you know, like, they are not familiar with his apologetic works or things like that. Yeah. And so it's it's usually Americans that are coming um, to the kilns, and, um, and then, and then but she would try to organize, like, events that would call on the local people and would alert them, you know, to some of the issues or maybe a speaker they might be interested in, you know, a little yeah. bit as an evangelistic tool in addition to, like, honoring his memory and promoting his ideas and works within, you know, the international community. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Man, that yeah. would be so cool. That I, I don't know. Like, it, I'd, I'd have to say, you know, that would be my... Yeah. My, on the top of my list of coolest things to do, which some people yeah. might think is nerdy, right? But hey, yeah, whatever. I was gonna say That's high okay. levels of nerdiness. High That's right. levels yes, of nerdiness going levels. on there, Marcus. Well, the thing yeah. is, like, he 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 became slightly cooler as well when I when I realized there was this report that came out. I think it was last year, two years ago. Um, he was actually like a secret agent or something. He was he was working for the British Secret Service at some point. Um, and I was like, wow, yeah, look it up. It was some report. I think, I, I, I think it might have been in Ireland or I, I can't remember. Look, don't quote How me. How interesting. But, um, yeah, it was because of his gift of, you know, speaking and orating. Like they used him for something. I can't remember all the details, but mm. check it out. It's really cool. Fascinating. It's amazing. Yeah, C.S. Lewis has just gone like mega legend. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, um, let's, let's move into this. I want to talk about the future of Adventist evangelists. Now, Lisa, you've been a voice in this conversation for some time. We've spoken about it in the past. When you came out to mm -hmm. Perth, we had a meeting with some pastors. We talked about church planning. We mm -hmm. talked about reaching the mm -hmm. culture, um, secular culture, postmodern, you know. Um, <clears throat> and I know that this is something that you uh, are have been thinking and you're quite passionate about. So I wanted to sort of pick your brain and, and just get your thoughts on sort of where we are today evangelistically as a tribe, as a faith tribe, as Adventists, um, and, and just, yeah, and just sort of go from there and see, do we, do we need to head a different direction? Do we just, or, or maybe not? I don't know. Um, but give mm -hmm. us your thoughts on, on where you see us today, and then we can sort of maybe go from there and start looking at what the future holds for us. Sure. Well, when I, I mean, I, I'm familiar primarily with North America and because of my year in 2017 living in Australia um, and traveling there quite a bit um, with the Australian church. So I can speak to kind of our collect our, our country, the U.S., that you and I share um, in common with and also the one where you're at um, 
in Australia. And I would say right now where we're at is a combination um, of methods. We use quite a few different methods, I think, in evangelism um, currently in, in these places if we just look at different local churches and what they are doing. Um, so we still have the use of um, the traditional big meeting model that started in the, in the 19th century, really, um, where you bring people in and um, present messages that are meant to stir their hearts and minds. Um, they, need, they come to quite a few of them. It's an event um, kind of driven with a lot of production that helps guide people to a place and a decision. And um, that's still going on and, and one could argue somewhat successfully um, in terms of baptisms. There are people that are attracted to that. Uh, we have people that are um, much more concerned with doing like in-home Bible study evangelism, and so trying to find out are there interests in Bible studies in people's homes. Um, sometimes that's combined with meetings, sometimes it's not. Um, and so local churches will sometimes have a Bible worker um, associated with them, kind of make, you know going into people's homes and studying the Bible with them in a systematic way. Again, primarily meant to lead them into certain understandings of truth as well as stir their hearts and minds and help them figure out how to apply this to their lives. Um, I think we have also increasingly this use of either in people's homes um, individually or kind of associated with the church but not always happening, you know, more widespread, which is the use of media, you know, YouTube videos and other things like that that people are using to try to get to a wider audience um, with usually little nuggets of truth um, intended to kind of stir hearts and minds, help provoke people to think, um, maybe touch them. And uh, we then have also, I think, continuing people's concerns with um, what we might call uh, a secular approach, uh, w approach to a secular audience where you might have a book discussion or a film in a discussion and try to bring people in um, to meet them and to find out what their interests are, to have activities, social activities, meeting people where they're at um, that are, are kind of reaching, yeah, reaching what we might call a more secular audience. And there's maybe still experiments a lot in that direction. That's still probably more baby steps and less tried than some of the other ways, including even digital methods. Um, but I think all of those are going on right now um, in both the U.S. and North America, and they have different levels of kind of whatever we might consider to be success. Um, you know, a form of evangelism that I think is really important, honestly, and maybe we can all have mixed feelings about it, um, and it's not happening as much as it could slash should, and that's um, prison evangelism. Um, mm. And, I mean, and, and this is not as big an issue in Australia as it is in the U.S., but there are tons of people that are incarcerated. Yeah. and. There's need for hope, and there are people that are doing this really well. There are churches that really reach out to this, but there's a ton of us that are not touching that with a 10-foot pole, and it's a need. Um, so if we're moving kind of from what is to what should be. I mean, I think the Adventist 
church kind of if you uh, if I think about the North American division anyway um, in a bigger umbrella over my church has um, a uh, you know has prison ministries and and sometimes raises those to uh, of people's um, awareness through our publications and things like that but in general I think Many of us who are, you know, more highly educated, upper middle class, identify with people who might call themselves post-Christians or um, secular, um, we're not touching that, really, you know. Um, and there are tons of people in that context that are open and ready and willing and in need of the good news. Um, and there are probably ethical and, and uh, issues that some people might consider, you know, whether that's, you know, kind of a sitting duck audience and, you know, how, how ethical it is to, you know, go into prisons. But I think those are all considerations that can be answered and, and dealt with. And, um, yeah. Well, you've you've kind of basically like very naturally kind of gone into what my follow-up question was going to be because we you know like like you mentioned some of the things that we see already happening around us, and um, I'm I'm one of these people who, while I am critical of some of our traditional modes of evangelism, I'm I'm not critical in the sense that I think we should stop them. Mm. Um, I'm I'm critical in the sense that I think we we need to expand right we need we can't just put all our eggs in one basket so to speak um but i do like it like i i do think that there is a, a, a large number of people that still respond to that and it would be really sad to just say hey let's stop doing it right um mm -hmm. and then you also talked about the home groups the media the secular approach and then sort of dove into like here's some areas that we could be exploring so i i want you to share a little bit more with that because i agree with you like a prison evangelism like i've i've only ever known a few people and it's usually like it's usually people in the local church you know members of the local mm -hmm. church who yep. are passionate about it um, yep. it's not usually led in any sort of official way not saying that, right. that doesn't happen but just in my experience yep. Yep. so yep. prison evangelism and then also yep. you talked about the challenge of um the post-christian sort of post-church culture that um it's not really being touched by the traditional models either um, so talk to me a little bit more about that. You've mentioned prison evangelism, um, but what would you say are like maybe some other things or some other approaches or things we could experiment with um, that could you know, sort of expand our mission to that part of society that's not responding to all the other stuff we're doing? Sure. Well, first of all, I would like to say that the prison evangelism, in my opinion, represents um, kind of the, the new trend in evangelism of a sort, um, which is decentralized, lay-led. You already mentioned it's not really top-down. There's usually someone who's passionate about it. My opinion, mm. that's kind of how it's all going to work and needs to work in the future. Absolutely. Like, And so I think there are things that pastors can get excited about and get involved in. And you occasionally run into a pastor who prison evangelism is their thing. But it is usually a lay person that's committed, that's going to be there for the long haul, you know, that shows it up all the time for people. And um, I think um, minority-led, women-led, lay-led, you know, decentralized evangelism is a continuing model that we need to lean into, you know, um, yeah. where it's not, you know, it, whatever the, the people, those on the edges, the, the edges of the movement are sometimes the most fertile, you know, and where the yeah. growth kind of is happening. And those are the people that are sort of, and, they're, and they don't always have all the credentials. They might, not, they might make mistakes 
you know, those of us that have more education potentially in theology and, you know, the ideas of church structure might go, oh, you know, I'm not sure that's exactly, you know, but yeah. you know what, that God's working, you know, and yeah. I think he can, he can straighten that sort of thing out. And we, and we have to like release control of desiring like what we think the outcome should be sometimes. So that I'll just say that, that the same thing about prison is true kind of for a lot of these other things. Um, now, one of the things that I think um, evangelism in the way that probably you and I are talking about it without defining it is, deep, is deeply rooted in the last 200 years, maybe you could say 250 years, of what we would call evangelicalism, which is the notion that we become a Christian by developing a relationship with God and that we have an experience and that we that brings us into a community that has certain ideas about and articulates a theology and so you, when you become a christian in in the evangelical sense and even in the Adventist community there's a twofold you kind of agree to a set of ideas and then you also attempt to move for towards a relationship with god and and in a way that might touch on the edge of things that in the past 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, would have almost been considered a little bit mystical, that, you know, that you have an emotional engagement with God in some way, um, you know, that you have a relationship, that there's love, that sort of thing isn't something that when people became Christians 500 years ago, they spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, That's really so interesting, it, yeah. Yeah, even if our our when we we are in that sense we are children of of the great awakenings um, and with what it means to become a Christian and 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 also again the idea that we then and that we have we, you become a Christian in the evangelical community in a specific tr line of 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 Christian like a particular group, the denomination, maybe a sect that has these kinds of ideas in some ways that make them different from other um, sort of Christians, that's almost always also sort of been the case that, that you're a particular kind of Christian, even if you don't know you are. Um, you know, even non-denominational churches, their pastors were trained in, in traditions and in certain seminaries, and they actually do um, reflect a specific tradition. It's not... Mm intellectually honest to, to act like it's just a generic, you know, simply, or in C.S. Lewis's words, mere Christianity. It almost always has a tradition um, that it's within. But in any case, um, I think that is, uh, those twofold things are slightly different than evangelism for millennia, which was to introduce people into a practice, into a way um, of being. And I think, and, and our as, as we think about other forms of evangelism that are not only about creating, you know, dealing with a certain emotional need that people have, they know they're wounded, they want a healer, you know, they feel comfort and peace, you know, they feel loved by God, you know, the, an emotional experience, as well as ideas of what truth is and idea, you know, what we hope are correct ideas about how God ordered the world and, you know, what his ideals are for us and, you know, how, how the past has worked and what we hope for the future, you know, um, the, and within the Adventist context, we call that the kind of great controversy model of, of sort of what has happened in the past and where we are now, our, our yeah, story right. where we fit. So we, we, we would hope that's happening too. But I think increasingly what is also going to happen is welcoming people 
who maybe don't have, and, and talking to people who maybe don't all have those emotional needs, and sometimes our evangelism has, has worked based on can we set them up for how they have a need, and basically telling you, 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 you've got a big gaping hole. If you don't see it, let me continue to talk about it until you finally see it, you know, exactly. um, this yeah. negative thing that you have. So if we if we aren't doing that by showing that there if they don't if it's not obvious to them because they're they're part of the walking wounded in the world um, and so it's very clear to those people you know that that Jesus the Savior the Redeemer the you know the Forgiver the you know all of that is what they need and want and is the answer to their prayers that they might not have even known to pray like that that is a real thing but then there's a lot of other people who that is not like that seem that is appears highly dysfunctional even to them that you're that you you're pounding into them their negative need you know and for some of those people what they want are they, they, this is why apologetics is really hot business right now um, because there are lots of people that even you know admire the let's say the Justin Petersons of the world um, you know and people who do philosophy to try to say here's the right way to think and, and order the world there's people that are super interested in that and sometimes those people emotions are never going to be getting to them you know and you and I might look at them and go man you're just so cerebral you're in your head and it's all about right and wrong and kind of right thinking and rationalism and you really need an emotional relationship with Jesus but guess what People are different, and there are people who we, we might acknowledge how many people are on the spectrum now, and emotions are not their thing. You know, we know a little bit more about how personality works, and Jesus is my boyfriend is never going to do it for them. You know, they're, that's, and if they <laughs> oh, literally, I love how you, put that. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's not that they, in fact, that might make them a little grossed out all the love and affection. And my historical training helps me realize that most Christians have not approached Christianity that way at all, ever. Mm. Like following God and being obedient to him and living in the light of the good news didn't really have anything to do with a relationship that they would emotionally give language to and that had, that they would ever use the language that we might call in a relationship with God. That would be mystics that have that. And so for me, I feel like it's super important that there are forms of, of, of what we might still call evangelism, which um, are, 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 are targeting people who want to think about things rationally, who want to do the right thing, and who want kind of a philosophy that orders the way they practice in the world, and that they may even give intellectual assent to that, but they might not ever have kind of that emotional thing, just like there are people who might have an emotional relationship with God. And all the theology stuff is never going to be their bag. You know, like that, you know, having to mm. figure it out all out theologically doesn't mean they're lesser Christians, you know, yeah. or weaker yeah. Christians. Um, and so, then, and then there's people who I think are fairly emotionally healthy and not necessarily rationalistic, who, who do, they want to be smart in the world. And I, I have people in my mind right now as I'm talking. And, and they're sort of, for me, who I think of when I think of the traditional secular post-Christian person. They're not militant atheists. They're not uber-rationalists. They're people who are reading, you know, Brene Brown and, you know, uh, popular psychology and social science books and, you know, go to counseling if they need it and, you know, are, are emotionally kind of healthy. But for whom all of this stuff blood sacrifice and, you know, the end of the world or, you know, no, that doesn't make sense to them, you know, That's and right. they don't, yeah. and the Old Testament, the, the stories they know of what Christians believe and, you know, how we practice, 
don't make sense to them of the world. And many of them will associate, if they do think about it, not all of them, but some of them will associate Christianity with rampant European imperialism and rape of the world, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And so they have concerns about allying themselves. While they're very sympathetic to lots of other religions, potentially, they have concerns about allying themselves with an ideology they consider to be hostile and mm. to, to how the world has been. So they, again, they're, they're emotionally healthy. They want to be, they need peace. They, they want comfort. They um, may not feel like they have, you know, tons of sins that constantly need to be forgiven and gone over in their mind. And they might be suspicious of any community that's constantly telling them that they're really sinful. They might consider that dysfunctional. Um, right. They might consider that, you know, like, I'm not sure I want to belong to a group where my kids are going to constantly be being told how bad they are, you know. Um, and so those people, I think, um, a different kind of evangelism, uh, you know, that, that, that would involve um, some apologetics in terms of being clear that truth is defensible. You know, it isn't, you know, crazy to think about the transcendent you know, the, 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 the miraculous, um, you know, and, and how, we, how we can explain that and talk about that in the world, and there's lots of resources on that. Um, but also, they need, they, what I, my personal opinion about how best that group can be evangelized is to be brought into community, into a practice, into a way of being in the world, that these, that the story that we, t that we with our, with our understanding of the three angels' message and the great controversy, the story we tell about the world, and and frankly, I think for that community, Seventh Day Adventists, especially amongst evangelicals, have an advantage because we have a high, high view of humanity within mm, our church and right. human nature, and we have, you know, and, and includes free will. Um, and we have uh, the responsiveness of God rather than the you know, predestination of God is more our emphasis. Both of those things exist within Christianity in lots of traditions, you know, both God's sovereignty and his responsiveness. But I don't want to exaggerate and pretend that people who emphasize the sovereignty of God and are in the Reformed tradition don't understand about God's responsiveness. Of course they do. But our tradition emphasizes in a way that is more readily understandable and attractive to the kind of community I've just described who are you know, more interested in being emotionally and psychologically healthy and who also want to be kind of smart. They want to, don't want to be duped by anything kind of foolish and, you know, anti-science and, you know, dumb. Um, they, yeah, you know, what to, for lack of a better way of saying it, um, you know, they do feel um, that, they, that they want sort of an understanding of how this works. And I think that group... Um, Finding ways to bring them into healthy community uh, where single people are caring for each other in community with people who are in families and people are raising their kids together and there's intergenerational, you know, kind of help um, that and wisdom and people are trying to live life and sort out life together as well as working for genuine good in the world. So one of the biggest ways I think evangelism works is when you are um, in, with this kind of what we might call post-Christian community is when you are living and working sacrificially 
for reconciliation, hope, mercy, and justice in the world. Um, and yeah. Christians are not the only people doing this, but our mandate to love and forgive um, is so deep that it goes beyond just a mere concern for kind of charity or even just kind of justice uh, in the world. And so, we, it, it, you know, having to, to drill down, and we have resources to sustain us for com during times of compassion fatigue. And so when we're, we continue to root our work for mercy and justice in the world in this long-term tradition, I think it's deeply compelling um, to, the, to this community. Absolutely. Man, you... You made so many amazing points um, there. I, I want to interact with one of them because it's something that uh, has become really, really real for me recently. Uh, uh, like I love ministering to secular culture and sitting down and talking about life and faith and um, and meaning with people who've never been to church before and don't have any of the sort of religious background. That kind of it's that's like my hobby, right? Mm -hmm. um, and. One of the things that I've discovered, and you were just mentioning this, and, and, and this is it's, it's sort of like to add to that, is that um, when we do evangelism, like sort of in the more traditional modes of evangelism, um, we, we, there's two things that we tend to do. Uh, the first is that we, we tend to assume the questions people are asking, and then we answer mm -hmm. those questions. And a lot of times the questions we assume people are asking are questions that people aren't really asking anymore. <laughs> like maybe they did 30 mm -hmm. years ago, but mm -hmm. not so much mm -hmm. anymore. Um, like, in, for example, in my, in my entire sort of secular circle, um, no, one really, no one's really asking questions about creation and evolution. It's not a priority mm -hmm. for them, right? Mm -hmm. In our traditional mm -hmm. evangelistic series, you'll see that topic come up a lot. And yeah, there's people who ask that. And of course, I'm not saying that it's a pointless topic. But mm -hmm. there's a clear disconnect. It's like, okay, this emerging generations, like, it's not that they don't ask that question. It's not that they don't interact with it. It's just like, it's not a big thing like it used to mm -hmm. be. Um, mm -hmm. But more to the point, like you, you mentioned how we, we, we're trying to create this need in people um, mm -hmm. where, where people have to see their brokenness and their emptiness and, and then they'll see their need for God. And if they don't see it, then it's our job to help them see it. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I agree with you that, like, that's another thing that I've encountered from interacting with modern secularism a lot is that people just don't don't have that angle at all. And, and it'll be um, in, in different ways. And so the ones that you mentioned, you know, sort of people tend to be more emotionally healthy and they're doing the sort of self-help thing and that's good enough. Uh, and another thing that I've encountered... Um, particularly if you go back to some of the some of the fathers of modern day secularism, you know the existentialist philosophers like Nietzsche and and Albert Camus and um, all these guys. Like one of the things that you find really prevalent in their thought, which I see impacting the culture today so much, is that life is is meaningless and headed nowhere, but that that very reality is something to be celebrated, not lamented, and so. It's not like people are like, oh, I'm so empty. I need an answer. Like, give me God. It's like, okay, yeah, life doesn't seem to have meaning and direction, but, um, you know, there is there's relief in the no meaning. I, I, there was a, another, uh, I don't know if that was Jean-Paul Sartre who said that. It was, it was one of the um, mm -hmm. um, old, old sort of existentialist philosophers who's like, look, there's, 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 there's relief in the fact that there's no meaning. Like, that's a good thing, mm -hmm. you know, because they see mm -hmm. truth and the claim for absolute truth 
as the sort of like the spawn of all the injustice in the world. Um, mm -hmm. And so when you have a community that claims they have the absolute truth, then you have all the necessary building blocks for oppression. And, and mm -hmm. so they reject absolute truth because that's, it's, it's not that, you know, it's a bad thing. Like, don't go there. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, and, and, so, and yeah. I think they, they, I think um, the, the people I run into more, unless they are kind of real, just high level intellectuals that are thinking, they find meaning in their life and they want to find meaning. So they, mm -hmm. I don't think they're thinking, oh, there's meaning in the meaninglessness. They want to find meaning. They find it in their relationships. Exactly. And, yes. and yes. with each other and, and, in, and in doing work that's useful in the world. Like they aren't just saying, oh, the world can just go to hell in a handbasket because, mm -hmm. you know, it's the universe is expanding. We're not going to be able to save the planet. Let's just all, at least most of the people I know, there, there, there are some that, you know, struggle with depression and, you know, anxiety and things like that that may have that attitude, but mostly not. And so one of the things that I think we can do and, you know, you have to have a, the right kind of relationship with somebody in the right sort of context. So I know not everybody feels comfortable with this kind of thing in a personal conversation with someone, but um, is I, 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 what I like to do is sort of name what they are doing and the meaning they're providing. Like part of what you can do when you're attentive, um, you know, in, in sort of the, the new kind of souling, new evangelism way, kind of some of the books like Speaking of Jesus and um, some of the others that um, I, I've read about this talk about the fact that mostly what we have to do be, is be super attentive in our conversations yes. to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is already doing in that person's life and affirming and naming it because mm. you know that that gives they that they understand that that gives value that makes them of course feel loved they are loved god is actually already working in their life they already are conduits of the holy spirit you know as they are to the extent that they are accepting of that you know and um just to name that i think is powerful for many of them and like i said partly then helps bring them into the practice of community um, with a community that is seeking to love each other unconditionally. Like, so for me, part of why I church, why I am, you know, part of the body of Christ is because I need to be in a community that is practicing unconditional love and forgiveness. You know, I need yeah. to be forgiven and loved, and I need to love and forgive other people. And I think we could increasingly live in a world where people that, that makes sense to them. Like they, you know, on the one hand, you've got people who are like, oh yeah, don't, don't just, I need to not be around any toxic people ever, you know, like, and so I need to eliminate anyone who I just don't like for my life. There's that stream of thought that does exist in the world. But for most of us, we understand we live in families. People are, you know, not always as healthy as they should be. We don't just abandon our family for that. You know, we figure out and that we need to practice love and be there for people who are might might not be you know totally emotionally healthy on their own and might or might be wounded mentally or physically anyway that i think that 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 sort of um bringing people in through helping name what they're already doing and saying you know my understanding of that is, is that's you know the common grace of god or like i i find you know i you know my my understanding of a of a personal God is, involves human beings who are fully created in, in his image and like 
I receive God through my fellow beings and I've been blessed by you. You know, like I'm I'm being blessed by these gifts that you have and this thing that you're doing. And, you know, it can be quirky and awkward and you can't do exactly what I've just said, you know, in every context, obviously, immediately or whatever. But But over time anyway, like... I do think they want me, most people do, most people are not hardcore enough, you know, Nietzsche notwithstanding, you know, to, <laughs> to uh, you know, yeah. say, yeah, yeah, it's all going to be good, and that's, and that's even a relief that it's not. Um, they mostly do want to try to figure yeah. it out. And, and I think that's the, that's the thing that, um, you know, for example, Albert, Albert Camus was, was really chasing or pursuing in his, in his life mm. and in his writings was that, um, you know, this, 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 this absurdity, in, in existence where like there's a deep part of us that wants you know meaning and then there's this universe yes. that mocks us and yeah. mocks our desire for meaning but that and, and commune never really turned to god to resolve that but mm -hmm. what he did as you mentioned earlier which i see a lot of people doing um and often instinctively like they don't need a philosopher to kind of hold their hand they kind of do it instinctively right. that they look at the world around them and they look at their relationships and their friends and their family and you know the, the simple um the simple pleasures of life as as a place to derive meaning and beauty from and right. and that there to a large degree and and i forget the guy's name he's he works for the pew research um who was who was saying that to a large degree like these people are pretty content you know yeah and so that's one of the things i've been thinking about it's like okay like we we have this model of evangelism that i basically um um I summarize it by by with the phrase of um, uh, oh boy I can't remember the phrase now um, <laughs> God as necessity that's that's how I summarize mm, right? Like, so right. God as necessity right. we're we're presenting God as a necessity to people and people who don't feel the necessity then don't yep. see the point right? yep. um, and and I was thinking about that and and I'm kind of toying around that's with quite this idea. jolting that's quite disturbing yeah to it is, a person yeah. like me I mean I was raised. Uh, a practicing Christian, some damaged Christian. I don't know about you, but that's quite like uh, it never occurred to me that mm. there that could happen. You know that people could not actually not need God. Like yeah. what? Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. But I still remember the secular guy who came to uh, to a youth gathering I was in one time, and um, we were sitting on, on round tables and we were praying. And he was with a friend of his, and I think they were traveling together. And his friend was part of the youth group. He wasn't. Um, but he just came along and uh, I don't remember his name, but I was leading the table and I asked him, hey, man, um, what would you like to pray for? And <laughs> he like without blinking, without skipping a beat, he looked at me and he said, um, I'm good, man. I, I, I've um, I make it a practice not to ask God for things like, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. in, in his mm -hmm. mind, it's like all you guys, you're just yeah. a bunch of needy people yeah. who are just asking yeah. God for stuff. He's like, I'm yeah. good. I'm thankful for what I have. I don't need to ask God for anything. You know what I mean? Fascinating. And so we, we have this approach where it's like God as necessity where, you know, you need mm. God for meaning and you need God for this and you need God for the other and for the other. And it's kind of like I've often wondered, like, you know, if 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 you discovered that the people in your life who are close to you, you know, relationally close to you, like your husband or your sister or your brother, um, if they're only with you because they need you. You know, like right. how would that it's make you feel? It's yeah, dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional. That's right, and that's how that's yeah. how a that's how the culture sees this sort of you know, like you mentioned, the Jesus is my boyfriend thing. Right? It's this dysfunctional mm -hmm. idea, like you you need this. It's the crutch, right? It's the it's the uh, what? How did Mark call it? It's the, the opiate of the opiate, people, right? Like yeah, you, you yeah. need this. 
um, as opposed to this idea, and this is kind of how I've been approaching it in my in my conversations with with secular people is in, and and it's it really ties in with what you were saying just a few minutes ago. Like instead of looking at God as necessity, right? Um, it's I don't really have a, a label for it, but basically looking at the beautiful things that are already happening in their life, and and mm-hmm. the things that are meaningful that are already happening in their life, and and celebrating that, and then. I should probably come up with a label for it. I just haven't, but uh, so I have to do like this long-winded <laughs> explanation. Mm-hmm. But um, it's basically like, you know, it's the difference between someone saying, "I want to be friends with Lisa because I need her um, mm-hmm. to fulfill these 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 needs in my life," or "I want to be friends with Lisa because she's inherently just a cool person to be around." Right, she's mm-hmm. inherently valuable. There's this, this well, and you know. like you know, in my you know, my case, ideally, you know, well, the world just doesn't make sense without her. You know, I yeah. mean, I I think in some ways, you know, those of us that were raised in faith, for me, this is my worldview. This is this is the story that I live my life around. You know, the the story that is the the apex of which is the incarnation. You know, mm. and you know, ends in the new heaven and the new earth. It makes sense of kind of what's happening with my life, and it's the it's the way I communicate, you know, my understanding of what's going on. And there are times when I am just weak and needy and I do just need, just, you know, like sometimes with your spouse, you're with, you just literally just need them, you know. Yes. And and so that's okay for it to be like that sometimes. But you don't want that to be the basis of why you're together. You know, yeah. you want you want it to be because um, it's, it's good and it's beautiful. And so I, I think... Um, you know, as you know, as we were, uh, you were talking kind of about uh, uh, Camus, and I started thinking about sort of some of the way people approach um, philosophy, and um, I, I think for so many people, um, they are content um, with things kind of as they are. Um, they don't. They don't necessarily think um, their world is um, falling apart. But at the same time, I think there's ways they can be nudged um, mm. to understand. Like I really like um, Ron Osborne's um, book on um, the humanism and the death of God, and um, he kind of goes through the way in which we human rights, which is based on like the value of human beings and their inherent dignity. Mm. really is very hard to argue for apart from something like the Imago Dei, you know, That's people right. made in the image of God. And more specifically for him, he really roots it in the incarnation. Mm. And um, I I think, uh, you know, he, he really does think that even though most people don't think of of Marx, uh, Nietzsche, and Darwin as their forefathers, um, the world that we live in is in many ways kind of created by those streams of thought and their the, the philosophers that came after them. And so, you know, he, he really does a good job of sort of laying out, we don't know where the future is if you can't just rely on someone's good nature and appeal to them, but like, oh, you just should treat human beings nicely. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't know where that is. And I think, you know, so, so I think there are ways that, you know, for people who are like, this is something I want to believe, I just don't want to be kind of dumb and, you know, but 
But for those who like don't really want to believe, I think this is a harder part of evangelism for those of us who have a heart for bringing people to God and whose hearts are broken when our, let's just be perfectly honest, our friends choose to walk away from the faith and are now what we might call post-Christian or, or secular. And, we, and, and we're so sad, you know, that um, that, that happened. And, like, maybe want to come up with what could we say to convince them, you know, what, what could we do, that, what kind of church could we construct that they might want to come back to, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I think part of what God has to tell us when we think about evangelism is, is again, to trust him. You know, Christ mm -hmm. is the light that lights all mankind, and people whose hearts are open um, to love, and to loving others, I mean, there's a lot of language in the Bible that say, you know, he's got it, he's got them, and and I want them to articulate their beliefs in a way that understands what I what I believe um, to be a good understanding of truth and a healthy one, and you know, one that has brought me joy, and you know, I certainly want to bring them alongside that. But when they aren't, that's not happening. Like I really have to watch personally my own desire for coercion. And I don't know if it's temperament, um, you know, I don't know if it's professional hazard because I get paid to make sure people are thinking the right thing, you know, like they yep. need to think good ideas and I, I, I have to, you know, give them the test and the quiz and make sure they have right understanding. And So, you know, I don't know what it is, but I, I want, I really want to kind of convince them of a way of thinking that I think is healthiest, that's my fellow Christian sometimes, but, you know, and to, to sit and let it be, you know, to let the Holy Spirit kind of continue to do the work of evangelism long term, you know, which we're all being evangelized, we're all learning to be more like Jesus, to follow him better, you know, and and um, to, to proclaim the gospel in a, in a more effective way, to forgive our neighbors, all of that stuff. We're still figuring that out. And yeah. so, you know, I can do that alongside and even out loud with my friends, you know, as and I, one of the things I'm learning to do with my friends who aren't believers, you know, and this is people I meet at history conferences year after year, and so we've become friends, and, you know, lots of people in my, my hometown, and I just got back from babysitting for one of my girlfriends who just, you know, has a six-month-old, and she's a, you know, tenure-track history professor at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, who's a German immigrant, and not, you know, was raised in East Germany, you know, not, not uh, religious at all, and, you know, figuring out how I talk to her about kind of what's going on in ways that I hope help her be open. You know, I don't know what it will mean. Like I haven't said, you know, what do you what do you think about God, Suze? And you know, would you be open to reading the Bible together? You know, I've never done either of those things with yeah, her. Yeah. Um, but I I believe that as I am attentive to the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is doing in her, and I'm okay to name it. You know, because we have affection for each other. You know that in the in the it's not it's a socially appropriate context for me to kind of say, yeah, I'm I'm really discouraged about the mass shootings this weekend too. I'm devastated. You know, and it's the you know the light of of the prophets. Um, you know, calling out justice that's comforting me right now. Like I'm just going to tell you. You know, I I don't. You know, that I go to my tradition, which has a strong lament tradition, and that's the only way I'm getting through. You know, right now, and. And that's the, you know, being able to just be open about how I'm processing the pains and, and grows in my life and being open like, yeah, I had to, 
you know, confess and ask forgiveness to my sisters this week and we got in a huge fight and, you know, and, you know, in a way, you know, they kind of, my friends will kind of laugh about that because, again, I have this big crazy family, but I'm like, you know, this is the practice of forgiveness, you know, and yeah. long suffering and, you know, what in the New Testament, you know, is called the fruits of the Spirit or, you know, things like that. So, yeah. I mean, I, I just think I have to trust God on those points, you know, as I'm marking steps towards evangelism or trying to see where someone is in the process of faith, yeah. I'm having to do lots of trusting God. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I, look, I, I see the same thing, and we're, we're going to be wrapping up soon because we're, um, um, we're running out of time. There was a few other things I was going to ask you, but, uh, but this is good. This is really good. I've, I've, <laughs> I've been getting a lot out of this, man. Um, you know, I think the challenge of reaching the, you know, post-secular or secular culture. I mean, it's like, I kind of call it the post-everything because it's, you know, mm. what what isn't post these days, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, even post-modernism is post. It's like, you know, yeah, post-modernism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, So, but I agree with you. Like, I think that, you know, there's, there's a several different things that happen in this scenario that actually aren't, new for some reason we seem to struggle with it in the west but what we're talking mm -hmm. about in this conversation is what missionaries have been doing for forever mm -hmm. right they're going to mm -hmm. they're going to a, a region they'll study the culture they'll learn how to communicate with the culture and they'll contextualize the gospel to make sense to that culture i had a friend recently who was talking to me about a book i haven't read it but it uh, she gave me the premise of it called um peace child um about a, a missionary who was working with these tribes where the their their central one of their central values was the more deceptive you are the 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 more you celebrated so when they read the gospel judas was the good guy to them you know mm. and he was like what in the world do i do you know and and of mm -hmm. course he contextualized and he found that the tribes had this tradition where when two tribes were at war in order for the war to end um one of the tribes would offer a peace child and wow. that child would be given over to the other tribe to be raised by the other tribe and you effectively lost that child right like it wouldn't wow. you, you would you know you it was that was it it was not a part of your tribe anymore he would grow up believing he was part yep. of the other tribe um and when he saw that he was able to wrap the gospel up that you know that jesus is the peace child um hmm. and so we we see this in missionary cultures you know the contextualization of the gospel quite a lot and for some reason we, we tend to struggle with it in the west where we think hey here's our you know here's our conceptual language and here's how we perceive of things and here's how we understand it and we're going to copy and paste this in every city town and village that we go to without any consideration mm. to the surrounding culture and to its value structure and to its you know to its language of being i mean we just copy and paste you know Mm -hmm. and, and and really what I hear you saying is you're talking about, you know, like, well, here are my friends and here's how we discuss and here's how we interact and here's the things that they're thinking and here's how they see reality and here's where what we're saying doesn't make sense to them. What you're effectively saying is we actually need to be, when it comes to evangelism, we actually need to sort of get away from copy and paste and really mm -hmm. get to know people and and contextualize the message of the narrative of scripture in a way that actually makes sense to them that's meaningful for them and it takes generations to create what we know as quote-unquote christian culture so like missionaries europe wasn't christianized till after 1000 you know it took it takes generations or missionaries are like yeah that they still don't quite understand you know and mm. it takes another generation of kind of practice and before 
you kind of feel like you have quote unquote what we might consider Christian culture. And I think that's a big problem that we have amongst us in the West. And what I hear sometimes is a nostalgia, and this is as a historian, it concerns me as well, a nostalgia for a time when you didn't have to do this. Like everyone already, already knew all these Bible stories. There was lots of biblical literacy. There was, you know, and it's basically a nostalgia for a time when Christians were dominant. And all we are doing is defaulting to a missionary context, like you're saying, a missionary culture. And if we if we just would acknowledge that, we, there might be less angst and, mm. and that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah. That's wow, a really that's good great. Point. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that transition, actually, that, you know, obviously the West used to be primarily Christian, so there wasn't much of a need to contextualize. But society is a lot more fragmented and post-Christian now, so but we haven't seemed to have made the transition with it. Um, I hadn't actually thought about that particular aspect of it, but that's yeah. a really good And just point, being yeah. okay with it, okay yeah. with the fact that this doesn't make sense to people, that it mm. seems weird to them. Of yeah. course, you know, it's weird. It's always been weird. Mm. You know, it's only that we just kind of got used to being the dominant people. And, and, we, and, and so you hear people talking about wanting to get back to something in the United States. I don't know if they do it in Australia or not. You know, wanting to get back to something, which isn't realistic and, like, not even maybe even preferable to just be able to rely on the culture carrying you, you know, on the fact that everybody automatically is Christian, so, and everybody already always has to read the Bible growing up, and they all know the King James, you know, mm. cadences, you know, about, yeah, yeah, about yeah. whatever, and, and to just say, if we could just get back to that, it would all be okay. No, mm. we're just, uh, this is the normal for Christianity, is that we're a missionary culture, and so we're always translated. And it's always evolving. You know, when you study church history and you study the missions, there was con constantly debate within between the Christian missionaries in the Middle Ages, in the 1200s. They're, you know, in the 800s, in the 600s. They're grumpy with each other because some of them are more purists and are like, hey, you're letting those people who still tie that thing on their horses' manes when they go out to battle, and you know that's pagan, and you're letting them be the Christian when they're still doing that, and they're pagan, and other people going, no, you know, we got them to change it to a cross instead. They understand it's just taking them a while to figure out, you know, like differences in who once, who thought it should be pure. I mean, missionaries truly disagreed about how Christian people had to be before they got to be considered Christian and which practices could be included in Christian. So yeah, again, yeah. as we, as we, to, we come full circle where we're like, what has been will be again. We're not doing anything <laughs> any different than anybody else has done before. That's so true, man. That's so true. I, I wanted to uh, close. I, I got another question for you before I close, but I just wanted to, um, as you were talking about like how far we've come as a culture and how like we're not the dominant, you know, Christianity is a missionary culture, not a dominant culture. Like it maybe was in the fifties and forties. Um, at least in America, but um, I, I just I went to this training thing with this pastor here in Australia who who shared a story with us where um, someone you know because he invests a lot in getting to know secular people and and, and journeying with them, and um, and one of his uh, friends, secular friends, actually asked him very early on in their relationship, um, did Jesus live before or after World War One, and it's like wow. you know, the room yeah. laughs. But it's like, that's what we're dealing that's with. That's a beautiful you know I mean? thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. that is what we're contending with. Like, we can't yeah. assume that people are, you know, by and large. And even myself, a few years ago, I was working at a, at a, with some doctors before I became a pastor. And, um, and I told the guy, one of the doctors I was working with, he was this typical Australian guy from Sydney. I told him, hey, I'm not going to be here much longer because I got hired to be a full-time pastor at, um, here in WA. And, uh, and he said, what's a pastor? 
Wow. And yeah. in my head, I had like this pre preset answer. I was like, well, I'm kind of like a hospital chaplain, but I don't work in a hospital. I work in a church. And he's like, what's a chaplain? And I was like, wow. oh, no. <laughs> so wow. I asked him, I was like, dude, you're a doctor. How do you not know what a chaplain is? Then you work in the emergency room. He's like, okay, well, right. fair enough. I saw them walking around, have no idea what they do. What do they do? And wow. I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's what we're fantastic. contending with, you know? And, yeah. Um, that, you know, that requires a whole different approach. So Lisa, I've really appreciated everything you said. I, th I feel like we could go for another two hours. Um, <laughs> we're going to have to wrap up. I, I do have one question just as a sort of a wrap up. Um, as people have been listening to this conversation and they're thinking, man, you know, Lisa says some really cool stuff. I'd love to learn some more. I'd love to contact her. How can people contact you? Sure. Um, well, I probably the best place is I have um, a page at Southern Adventist University in the history department and it has email and even a phone number that you can contact me um, at and those are both fine ways to do that. Fantastic. All right, guys, you heard that. So if you just uh, Google SAU Lisa Clark Diller, um, mm -hmm. you can find her page with her contact details if you'd like to get in touch with her. Um, and talk a little bit more about the future of Adventist evangelism. Lisa, it's been absolutely awesome. Thank you for taking the time uh, to welcome. hang out with me today and talk about these things. It's been brilliant. And for those of you guys who've been listening, thank you um, for checking out another episode of the Story Church podcast. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure you get yourself over to thestorychurchproject.com and download the free ebook, How to Study the Bible with Postmoderns. It's cool. It's free. Why not? Right. All right, guys, I will catch you next week. Take care and God bless.